passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 31. Have you ever uh, gone fishing for a compliment? No, you haven't, I'm sure. But have you ever gone fishing for a compliment and not gotten exactly the response that you thought you were going to get? You know, it just didn't quite work out. That happens sometimes. Well, Jesus in this uh, passage, he asked the disciples, who are, who are people saying that I am? What's, what's the word around town? What are people saying about me? And they toss out various answers. Well, well, Jesus, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're a teacher. And they toss out various answers. And then Peter says, well, Jesus says, well, Okay, what about you guys? Who do you say? And Peter, in one of his rare not putting his foot in his mouth moments, says, you are the Christ, or you are the Messiah. Same word, just different translation. And so things are good at that moment, for that moment, for Peter. But it doesn't stay that way long. Chapter 8, verse 31, then he, that's Jesus, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's one of the ways he referred to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory And with the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord God. We come to a passage of scripture. That is a haunting one. It's a it's a difficult one. For believers, men and women, boys and girls, disciples of Jesus, it is hard for us to imagine 
how we could be thought of as Satan. And it's really, really hard for us to imagine that one day when Jesus comes back to receive his own, that we would not be looked at with pride and joy. Father, help us to understand how we might be all that we can and should be, how we should live our lives in a way that we can anticipate a joyous reunion, that we can understand what your kingdom is really all about, what following Jesus is all about. We pray and we ask these things in his precious and holy name. Amen. Today's message is all about Jesus the Messiah and Peter the devil. And you may say, I don't stick my foot in my mouth. I don't blunder. I don't mess up. I don't fuss and cuss like Peter did. But I'm going to tell you, if Peter could be the devil, then so could you. So could I. Because the devil simply means adversary. And anytime we go up against God, anytime we fail to fall in line with his plans and his ways and his purpose for our life, and instead of joining him and following him, we choose to oppose him, we become the devil, that is, we become God's adversary. Bad idea. And so the point this morning, what I want to talk about very quickly, is how you and I can avoid that. What are the decisions that we can make as disciples of Jesus Christ that can help us to not be God's adversary, but rather how we can fully agree, fully be on his team? You remember playground ball and all the trash talk that went along with it? And when someone messed up, on the, other, on the other side, and you say, thanks a lot, you're the best player on our team. How does Satan feel about that sometimes? When we oppose God, he thinks, thanks a lot, you're the best player on our team. Well, we don't want to be that. We want to be the best players we can be on God's team. So let's think about three decisions that every disciple must make. Three decisions that every follower of Jesus Christ must make. And Peter and the other disciples hadn't yet figured this out. But their experience was recorded here so that we could get it. So that we could figure it out. And they certainly did eventually. And God wants us to get it. First decision that all of us have to get. All of us have to make my will or thy will. My will or thy will. Every single week, and many of us every single day, if we pray the Lord's Prayer, but we, we pray it in church every single Sunday, and many of us pray it every single day as Christians. And we pray as a part of that prayer that comes straight from Scripture, Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. We say, oh, God, we want what you want. But do we live that? Do we really believe that? Or are they empty words? You see, when he called him Satan, get thee behind me, Satan. 
Why did he say that? He said, get out of my way because you are opposing God's will. Your words, as you take me aside, Peter, you say, no, 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 no. Look at Peter's mindset. Peter has just called him the Messiah. Peter would be, he would be so mad and frustrated at this point. Jesus, I'm looking out for your needs. I love you. I don't want to hear all this talk about you going to the cross and dying. This is terrible stuff. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. Don't talk about all this terrible stuff about suffering and dying. I don't want to hear it. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Why did Jesus say such a thing? Was he being cruel and ugly and mean? No. He didn't want to hear it because he was telling Peter, Peter, what you're saying is not about God's will. It's all about your will. It's all about earthly concerns and not about spiritual concerns. Let's look at exactly what he said here. Verse 33. He says, it says, But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, Get behind me, Satan. He said, You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. In other words, Peter, you say you're concerned for me, But really, you're not really concerned for me. You don't really have the greatest love for me. You have the greatest love. You have the greatest concern for how this is going to affect you and and normal things of life. You don't have the concern for God and his plan. You don't have the concern for what is going to happen because I have just told you that the sins of the world need to be atoned for. I've just told you that the whole world is depending on me dying on the cross. And you're sitting here saying, no, 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 that can't happen, Jesus. You're the voice of Satan. He tried to stop me from going to the cross, and now you're jumping on his boat. You're getting in the car with him. You're trying to do the same thing he did to turn me back for my purpose. You see, it is these earthly concerns. Peter might have said, but you're my friend and I don't want you to suffer. Guess what? Sometimes suffering is part of God's plan for us. One time, years ago, I went to a huge missions conference. And this happened to be a Southern Baptist missions conference. I was pastoring a Southern Baptist church at the time. And whether like them or not, whatever you want to say about Southern Baptists, they happen to have the largest missionary agency in the world. They put out more missionaries than, than any other, uh, or at least at the time they did. I don't know if that's changed, but at that point they had more missionaries than any other evangelical uh, organization in the world. And this guy who was part of their uh, organization was preaching, and he said something that stuck with me ever since then. He said, you know what keeps more missionaries off the field than anything else? And I was listening. I thought, I thought he was about to hit us up for money. I really did. I thought, there, oh, he's about to pass the plate. He's about to say we need more money for missionaries. He didn't say money. Or I thought, maybe he's going to hit us up for commitment. I bet, he's, I bet he's about to tell us, if you love Jesus, you're all going to walk down the aisle and commit to missions in the Middle East or Africa or something like that. Right? He didn't do that. What he said shocked me. He said, 
The greatest thing that's keeping missions, missionaries off the mission field right now, the greatest hindrance to worldwide missions is grandparents. And I was like, huh? Because I expected there was some evil, bad, carnal, terrible thing that was stopping the worldwide spread of missions. And he said, grandparents. And I was thinking, dude, what are you talking about? And he said, and all of y'all are saying, dude, what are you talking about? And let me explain it to you. He said, when these young men and young women, maybe single or maybe couples, and they are on fire to God and God touches them and they feel a call and they want to go halfway around the world and serve Jesus and, and their friends are excited for them and their pastor's excited for them and their church is excited for them and they're all pumped and they're all ready to go and they go home and they tell mom and dad and their mom and dad who all their life have raised them in church and told them about loving Jesus and given to the missions offering and they tell mom and dad and mom tell, oh, 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 no, you're not going to take my grandbabies and they're like I ain't had no your future grandbabies that my future grandbabies that you about to have by the way get on the stick that 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 you're going to you are not going to take them halfway around oh no you're not God is calling you to be a very good uh school teacher or engineer or something else right here that is what God he's told me I've been listening and he said that is the number one thing that is stopping more missionaries from going. Now, I have no way of knowing whether that's really true or not, but that was his perspective as one of the head honchos from one of the largest mission organizations in our world. And what is that? That was the concerns of man over the concerns of God. And that is exactly what Jesus was calling out right here. He said, Peter, you're Satan. That is, you're my adversary. Why? Not because you're not concerned, but because your concern is coming from a place of what is this all about on a human level about instead of a divine level? What is God wanting here? And sometimes what God wants from your life is not the easiest, not the quickest, not simply, oh, well, this is the avenue that makes the most sense. But it's what God's plan and will is that, that accomplishes his purposes. And you and I as disciples, to, to follow him, we've got to answer that question. Not just am I going to say the words of the prayer if it was that simple, we'd all have it done because we've all said that prayer a million times. Oh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We've done that. We've said it. It's not about saying words, though. It's about actually surrendering to God in the decision process every single day, looking at God, I want your will to be done and not mine. And we can lie to ourselves. You know, the Bible says that the heart is deceitful of all things. Man, we can lie. How many people have committed evil in the name of God? Untold. How is that? Because the heart is deceitful above all things. 
we have to really be super honest with ourselves and put thy will, God's will, above our own. Second decision of a disciple's, of a disciple. Am I going to save my life or save myself or go broke for God? Save myself or go broke for God. So this first little part of it, when Jesus rebuked and called him Satan, that was just kind of with the disciples present. It's really funny, by the way. The way that it looks, it it says that he called him aside and, and he was rebuking Jesus. But then it says Jesus kind of turned and it makes it look like the rest of the disciples had kind of tiptoed up behind, <laughs> and then Jesus kind of lets him have it and, and in a way that all the other disciples heard that part of it. But for this next part, it says Jesus went ahead and called the rest of the crowd. That They were too far away to hear Peter get called out. So the 12 heard him get called Satan, but, you know, Jesus wasn't going to do that to Peter in front of the whole rest of the you know, the rest of Christianity didn't hear about that until later. But, but now Jesus calls in all the other disciples and he says, I, I want all of y'all to hear something here. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And listen to this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? For what can, give any, what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The idea is there is an economy in this, in this supernatural world that is completely opposite from the way money normally works, at least the way we think it does. Because we think, well, I'm going to just hoard everything, and I've got to save, and I've got to whatever. And basically, God says this. If you hoard, and if you gather, and you spend your whole life reaching and overreaching and trying to insulate yourself and protect yourself and, and, and surround yourself with stuff to protect yourself, you're sunk. You're lost. You've wasted your whole life. He says, but in fact, the way to gain life is that you give your life away. You spend your life. Now, ba- now listen, this isn't wasting your life. This isn't the whole YOLO where kids do stupid stuff because uh, YOLO, I'm just going to do crazy stuff and waste my life. It's not that. This is spending my life because God created me to do stuff with my life to spend my life for eternity. I am, God gave my life to me not to hoard my life, not to be selfish with my life, but for me to give my life away for him because Christ came and gave his life away for us. I am to give my life for others. 
I am to come and follow my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave his life. He did not come, the Bible says, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we follow our Lord and Savior as coming to give our lives away. And Jesus says, the one who gives his life away, he's the one who's going to find life. The idea is, you find life by giving life away. The more you try to hold on to it and squeeze it, the more it slips through your fingers. A real and meaningful life is a life of generosity. It's a life of giving of yourself. It's a life of serving. It's a life of following Jesus' commands. It's this life that's not about grasping. It's not about trying to take from others, but giving to others. It's not about trying to hold on to everything you possibly can. There's so many people that live in fear that someone's going to take something from them or someone's going to have more than them or they're not going to measure up to someone else. And it's just constantly eating away at them and it's destroying them. And I think about in the Old Testament, that guy in the early process of, of the Israelites going in to the land and taking it over the promised land like they were called to. And remember that one guy when, when they were supposed to not take anything after Jericho. But the one guy thought, hey, I'm going to be the exception to the rule. I'm going to take some bounty out of this. And he took it and he, and he hid. He dug under his tent and he hid some stuff and he buried it there. And and. A curse came over like the whole of Israel because of this. And of course, his sin was found out. And eventually he and all his family dies because of it. But even before that, did it bless him or help him in any way to have this extra that all of his friends and neighbors didn't have? No. It was in a hole. And he lived in fear day by day that someone's going to find out and he was going to get in trouble. Or maybe someone would steal it or take it. But he thought his life was going to be so much better because he broke the rules and had more than everybody else. And this idea of understanding that our God is a God of generosity, a God of giving, a God who is outward focused. And we find life when we are givers rather than when we are takers. That is what Jesus was trying to get them to understand. We don't really have an abundant life when we're graspers, but we have abundant life. And I'm not talking about primarily money here. I'm just talking about our life itself are you the kind of person that sucks life out of others? Are you the kind of person that gives life? That when others are around you, that they are encouraged, that they are filled, that they go away from you feeling better? Or are they kind of that kind of person that simply, man, I'm thinking about, there's like zero chance they could be watching 
but I'm just not going to say their names anyway. But I know a couple that I used to be around years ago, many, many years ago. And it's funny, they're a great couple. And, um, but, it's, but they were night and day difference. And gosh, I got to keep it careful here. But uh, this, this couple, one of them, one of them was life-giving, all right? And the other one was life-draining. And so me and the other people that were around this couple, it was so interesting. I'll just say that they were in a place of authority over some of us. And the one who was life-giving, we loved to be around him. And every time we could, we would be around him. And even though he was an authority figure, and even though he would have reason and cause to make us work or do things, we were happy to be around, even if we had to do something. But it was so funny. And then, but like when we saw the other one coming, there was like lookouts. They'd be like, hey, she's coming up the stairs. She's parking. And everybody like, scatter. And everybody like, hide. No one wanted to see this other person. She wasn't evil. She wasn't bad, but she just sucked the life out of everyone because when she came, she came to take. She came, oh, come here, I've got something for you. I've got something for you. And it's like every time it's like she's here to use me up, all of my energy, all of my fun, it's all going to go. And it was just, I, everybody knows people like that, but it was so interesting because this couple, it was in the family and it was like night and day. He would just like fill you up and she would drain you down. And that contrast is always stuck in my mind of this is what I want to be like and this is not what I want to be like. I want to be the kind of person that is putting life into people and not sucking it out of them. Final thing here, final thing that as a disciple, we've got to decide for ourselves. Am I going to live my life to impress man or impress God? Living to impress man or living to impress God. Jesus says this. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. By the way, uh, adultery, yes, it is literally talked about in the Bible sometimes. It's talking about literal uh, sexual sin. But oftentimes it's used as a symbol of spiritually uh, talking about people who are fickle, who go back and forth. Yes, I'll serve God. Not today I'm not. Today I'm playing around and doing my own thing. And that's what it is a lot of times in Scripture. Pretty sure that's what Jesus is talking about here. The people who one day say, oh, I love Jesus so much. Mm, I'm not really feeling Jesus today. Today I'm feeling like doing my thing because, you know, the thing that... I want to do today is kind of breaking some of stuff that Jesus wants me to do, so I'm going to go this way, okay? So just keep that in mind. Oftentimes when Jesus is talking, when the scripture is talking, think about is it really talking about, does it look like it's actually talking literally about a sexual sin? Because if not, it very well may be talking about our adulterous hearts. That is, are we faithful to God or not? So Jesus, let's go on here. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in my Father's glory with the holy angels. That's an awful thought. That's an awful, awful thought. That on the day that Jesus returns with all of his angels, there's going to be some believers that Jesus is going to be ashamed of. That's terrible. That's awful. And you may say, oh, well, this, does it really mean that? I mean, that's, that's one verse. That it, guess what? There's actually a lot more verses about that in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever caught it because we don't talk about it a lot. We don't mention it about it a lot. In fact, somehow the average Christian in his or her mind assumes that somehow magically that every single person is going to one day hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But the problem with that is God never lies. He doesn't. Now, I'm not trying to uh, mess with your heads. I'm not trying to stir us up all into some type of perfectionistic thing to say, oh, unless you're completely perfect, you're not going to be welcomed in. No, 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 no. If it weren't for grace, (laughs) if it weren't for grace, nobody would get into heaven, much less hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But listen to those words, good and faithful, not perfect. He didn't say, well done, perfectionistic servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. But what Jesus is not going to do is to look at someone who rode the fence. Someone who said, oh yes, I know I accepted Jesus, but life was hard. And you know, it got hot doing what's right. And it got real uncomfortable and it was just easier to go along with the crowd. It got easier to just compromise. It got easier to go along with society. It got easier to make fun of those other Christians who are standing strong because everybody else was making fun of them. It got easier to not do what was right. Yeah, I I know I'm okay with God, but I'm not going to really talk about that because that might get me made fun of. That might get me hurt. Do not believe that on that day that you see the Lord, that he's going to say, well done. If you live a life of compromise, if you live a life of walking the fence, If you live a life of saying, I love Jesus and I follow him as long as it's easy, as long as it doesn't change my lifestyle, as long as it doesn't get too tough, do not for a second fool yourself or let Satan fool you into thinking that everything is going to be fun and games and going to be great. But please do understand 
that this is not, I'm not talking about work salvation and working good enough to be into heaven. Not talking about that at all. You're saved by faith. You don't get saved by your works and you don't stay saved by your works. But I'm talking about the fact that those of you who have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, so you're in the family of God, when you see Jesus, there is going to be a reckoning for all of us. And that reckoning involves tons of grace. And that's the whole reason that any of us have the possibility of hearing those words, well done, good and faithful servant. None of us could possibly hear those words if there wasn't tons of grace involved, all right? And so it's not something for you to, like, let a certain part of yourself completely get uh, tense or worried about and say, oh, I may have done this a long time ago. No, God's grace. He doesn't hold on to sins. He forgives. He separates them as far as the east is from the west. If you have walked with him and, and when you've sinned, you've confessed it, and, you know, you can look forward to a great meeting with the Lord. But what I'm talking about is for someone who is intentionally bailed out on God, intentionally said, I'm going to be a Christian light. I, I, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to take the benefits of Jesus I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to, like, have good church friends. But I'm just not going to take that hard stuff. I, I'm just not going to deal with that. There, is, there are real and true consequences. Because as we face God, and it's, there's a whole lot of teaching. Paul teaches a lot about it. It's something called the judgment seat of Christ. It's actually a platform in the ancient world they had at the Isthmian Games and the Olympic Games. That's where they evaluated what the runners and the wrestlers and basically how did they do as they ran their race. And God is saying, how did you do in the race, in the Christian life? What did you do? Did you run for me? Did you race for me? Did you wrestle for me? Did you do what you could for me in your life. See, 1 John says, and I love John in this. He was old when he wrote it, so he's kind of really comforting and stuff because he didn't want the Christians to be all stressed out about it. But on the other hand, he wanted them to take it seriously. So he's kind of grandfatherly at this point. He says, and now, dear children... Continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. What do you do to be unashamed when Jesus comes again? Continue in him. That means basically be unashamed of him right now. If you're unashamed of Jesus right now, if you're following him right now, then you'll be unashamed when he comes again. You'll be unashamed when he appears before you. And you'll be joyful and you'll be glad and you'll walk into his glory, into his presence. And you'll hear those words, well done, 
But if right now in this day and age, if you're ashamed of him, if you're walking that fence and you'll be, you'll speak up and say, hey, I'm a Christian when you're around other Christians. But when you're around other people, you're ashamed of Jesus. And you're more worried about what other people think than what God thinks. Then you're probably going to be ashamed on that day when you are face to face with your Lord. And you have a decision to make that's going to affect your eternity. What are you going to do in this life? Are you going to choose to impress man? Are you going to choose to impress God? Bow with me in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, help us to make these choices, the right choices as we live our lives that we can be effective disciples, that we can learn of Jesus to be more like him. God, help us to not just take our earthly, selfish concerns, but Lord, to choose thy will over my will. Lord, help us to choose to give our lives, to live lives of giving rather than grasping. And Father, help us to choose to be unashamed of Jesus so that we, we can be unashamed and he will be unashamed of us when we meet him face to face. Lord, help us to understand that these things are very real and they will affect us in very powerful ways when this, not only in this life, but in the next. And they will affect our friends and our families, both now and for generations to come. God, we pray and we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.